Let's go to 1 Peter once again in the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. In chapter 1, we've seen Peter addressed his readers as blessed beyond measure because they've received an eternal salvation. It's a salvation so awesome that Peter has said that the prophets obsessed over it and the angels are amazed at it. And having been redeemed out of slavery to sin to such a great salvation, Peter tells us that God has called his redeemed to be a holy people. And after mentioning several necessary corollaries of holy living, such as fearing God and loving one another and growing by God's word, we heard last week from verses 4 through 10 of this chapter that we are to confidently grasp hold of who we are in Jesus Christ. We need to know who we are, Christian, especially when times get difficult, especially when the pressure and the hostility against our faith increases. We need to know who we are. But today's text has to do with the practical application of our Christian identity. It's like Peter saying, so you claim to be a Christian. Well, you have a responsibility. God has plans for you. You have a mission in this world. You have a responsibility to the world around you. We're not called to hibernate as Christians or to hide away or build some kind of a Christian commune cut off from the world. But we are called to put on display our faith to a watching world. So let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us once again from his holy word. Our Father, we come to you awaiting to hear from you. We know that you have spoken and we know in a very real way that your Holy Spirit takes your words and makes them fresh and new to us every time we come to you with an open heart and open ears. So, Father, we're asking that this morning you would prepare the soil. You would prepare the soil of our hearts. Father, that we would have an attitude that whatever you say to us, we will do. Whatever you would put your finger on, we would be willing to make that right. We would be willing to let that go for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the watching world that you have called us to win for his name. Lord, we pray that your spirit would make plain your will for us. We pray that you would... Use your servant, once again, Lord, use your servant to speak forth your words. We need to hear from you. We're asking that you would show us Christ. And we're asking that you would help us to show Christ to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. During New Testament times, the Romans especially loved the amphitheater. While Rome was a very cultured civilization, it was also very brutal. This was a civilization that was, in many respects, savage. They were ecstatic over the sight of blood violence. You just have to remember that this was before the spread of Christianity's anti-violence sentiment. This is before Christian compassion was woven into the fabric of Western morality's ethos. 
the people would come to these games at the local amphitheater and they would enjoy watching them. And the games were typically very brutal, involved life and death, of course. So before the spread of Christianity, we see crowds flocking to the circuses, not to see clowns, but to see criminals and slaves and to see the rejects of society and gladiators and such ripped apart by wild beasts. This was entertainment at its best. At the center of the amphitheater was the arena, which was so named from the Latin word for sand. This was a sandy flat where the blood would be spilled. It said the Romans used sand to soak up the blood. Well, if we were Christians, living under, say, the wrong emperor at the time, we might have found ourselves put on display in such an arena before thousands or at least hundreds of bloodthirsty spectators crying out for the cages to be opened and for us to be devoured. It happened. This is history. Christians just like you, Christians like Ignatius of Antioch, is one that we read about in history who is fed to the lions for his faith. Or others were displayed on crosses or burned alive. And the real question is, who put these Christians in the arena? Who put these Christians on display? Well, of course, we could say the Roman government. It was those who hated the Christians and delivered them over. But ultimately, it was God. The early Christians understood this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 said that it seemed to him that God had put the apostles on display like those condemned to die in the arena. He said, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. There's a sense in which God puts Christians on display to show forth their faith. Jesus said his disciples, those who belong to him, are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. We are a city set on a hill, whether or not we want to be. If you're a Christian, God doesn't ask you how you feel about it. He wants you to know the eyes of the world are upon you. The whole world is watching. Shakespeare was right. All the world's a stage. And you're on it. What will you show? What will you display? This is why Peter tells us we must be sure we're displaying the right message. Because the world is watching. The main verb in our text appears at the beginning of verse 11 where Peter says, I urge you. And what he urges for here is for genuine Christians to live out a genuinely Christian life. Of course, the entire rest of his letter is going to constitute what that will look like. But here he's setting the tone for everything that will follow. We sing the the song, To God, show us Christ. But here God's saying, show them. Show the world Christ. The British evangelist Leonard Ravenhill used to say what the world needs is not a new definition of Christianity. Boy, there's a lot of that being bandered about, isn't there? People trying to redefine what is true. They want to change the truth because they want to make it popular. They don't want to bear the reproach of Christ. No, we don't need a new definition of Christianity, but what this world needs is a new demonstration of Christianity. And that's Peter's point. This is more true today than ever. We must display Christianity to the watching world. We must display, we must demonstrate Christianity. Not simply talk about it. Not simply uh, wear a bumper sticker or whatever or a t-shirt. We must demonstrate Christianity 
to a watching world. And this text before us indicates three ways that we must do so. First, we must display Christianity given our Christian identity. Or you could say we must display Christianity because of who we are. We are Christians. And because we are Christians, if this is who we are, we have no choice. Notice Peter begins verse 11 with an affectionate term of address. Beloved. God first called his people beloved in the Old Testament. And later in the New Testament, we see this title is used again of the church. God describes his people with this title of endearment. That's what Peter's doing here. He's describing them as beloved, not simply because he loves them as friends in the faith, but because they are beloved of God. This makes sense in light of everything Peter's just said in verses 4 through 10 of this chapter. If you are a true Christian, Peter wants you to know your identity as God's beloved comes with two massive implications. First, as beloved of God, we have a new responsibility to display God to the world. We represent him. We are his own. Look back at what Peter's just said in verses 9 and 10. You know, this was a lengthy text last Sunday. We didn't have near so much time to spend on it. But look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you are. He doesn't say you will be. He says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim. This is very public. Demonstrate. Let the world know, he says, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This one who's called us from darkness into light is Jesus Christ. He's the one whose excellencies we are to proclaim. And if you just compare this language here that Peter's using with the language of the Septuagint, which is the, that's the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll, you'll see Peter's very likely citing here, or alluding to rather, Isaiah 43, 21, where the Lord says, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. God says, I formed a people. I chose a people for a purpose. To manifest who I am. To show forth my glory to the world. The Lord has formed us as his people, as a church. Those called out from the world to the glory of Jesus uh, for his namesake. To declare his praises or to proclaim his excellencies to the world. And so the fact that we've received a new responsibility in light of our identity... That is very plain from verses 4 through 9. Peter implies that again when he addresses us as God's beloved. This shouldn't be difficult to understand. Your identity, your new identity in Jesus comes with a new responsibility. We know this. We see this and we understand this when, when we become a parent. If you're a parent, you know that when you became a parent, you received a host of new responsibilities, didn't you? Among which was the responsibility to love and care and train up your child. No matter how challenging, that was your responsibility. That is your responsibility as a parent. When a man or woman becomes a citizen of this country, he or she is compelled to swear an oath, which involves, get this, absolutely and entirely renouncing and abjuring all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign, former, prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. And these incoming citizens 
must swear to support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. New citizens of a new country have a new responsibility to represent that country faithfully, to defend it. And even so, Scripture tells us that if we're part of God's people, we're citizens of a new kingdom. We are now citizens that belong to a heavenly country. And so we now have a responsibility with all this identity to conduct our lives worthy of our new king and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As God's beloved, we have a new responsibility to display our God. But as God's beloved, we also have a new relationship to this world. Peter says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, that having been made alive by Jesus Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens to God. We're no longer strangers and aliens to God, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. That's exactly what Peter's just told us in verses 4 through 10 of this chapter. We saw that last week. Jesus lays a foundation and is building on that foundation a people for his namesake. And we're no longer strangers and aliens to God. But it's actually by right of that fact that we are no longer aliens and strangers to God that we are now considered aliens and strangers to this world. You can't have the one without the other. The Bible actually puts this relationship more bluntly in James 4.4 when it says, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's very strong. But the inverse is also true. Whoever is a friend of God will find himself at odds with the world. It's a war. You have to choose a side. We'd love for everybody to be at peace, but this world is at war with God. And you, if you're God's people, represent him. Guess what that means for you in relationship to this world? Peter, when he uses this word aliens, he's saying we're a people who are with respect to our Christian faith, completely alien, completely foreign to this world. And the word translated strangers next is better understood as sojourners because Peter's not just repeating himself. He's not just implying we are just aliens, just strange or foreign to the world, but that we are actually pilgrims. We are sojourners like Abraham in a strange land. He was bound for another land. And we as aliens in this world who don't belong to this world system are citizens of another country toward which we are bound. This is why we meet with opposition. Because we're citizens of a rival kingdom, representing that kingdom and pressing toward it. In Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian swears allegiance to the king of the celestial city, he's opposed by the wrathful Beelzebub, this demon, who wants to stop Christian dead in his tracks or have him turn back He can't have Christian go on. Beelzebub knows if he lets Christian go his merry way toward the celestial city as a sojourner, as an alien in his world, as it were, his country, he knows that he will lose Christian forever. And not only will Christian be forever lost, but every single citizen of Beelzebub 
will also, who is inspired by Christian's faith, they will also be lost. There's high stakes. And so the devil wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy every Christian because he fears even your Christian identity. You see, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm not a, I'm not a world leader in the church or anything like that. If you are a Christian, you represent Jesus Christ and the devil's after you. He's gunning for you. He fears your identity because he knows not only will he lose you, but he fears that others may be drawn to follow after your king. And he doesn't want others to be attracted to seek after Christ. So there's a real conflict here. Now the fact that we're aliens and strangers in this world might somehow suggest to us, okay, so the world just can't understand us, right? How could, they ever, how could we ever have meaningful communication in this world? But this doesn't deny the fact that meaningful communication with this world is possible because God has commanded us to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. He has commanded us to communicate the gospel to this world. So God's not telling us as aliens and strangers, the world just can't understand our message. But rather that the world really doesn't want to understand our message. We can proclaim the truth. Communication is possible, but we must understand that when we speak to this world of Christ, we are doing so as aliens, as foreigners. We will strike others as very odd indeed. Hey, I know every Christian wants to be hip. Who wants to be thought weird? Right, you want to be thought hip. You want to be popular. But guess what? If you faithfully proclaim the message of Jesus Christ... There's no way around it. I'm sorry. You will be thought an odd duck for the name of Jesus. This has been the legacy of all the saints, of those who proclaim the excellencies of our Lord. The world thinks us odd. They even oppose us. While our identity as God's beloved is sure to destine us then to greater fellowship, unity with our Lord, do you see the, the inverse relationship? Our identity, the same identity as God's beloved, sure destines us to greater alienation with this world. And yet, we must display Christianity, given who we are, given our identity. But secondly, we must display Christianity, Peter wants us to know, by our Christian behavior. There's no way around that. If we are Christians, we must behave like Christians. We must behave like Christ. We can say anything we like, but unless we are actually behaving like Christ, we're not really displaying what Jesus has called us to display. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. I'll stop right there. Peter describes two measures here we must take in order to display true Christian behavior to others. The first measure has to do with our inner personal desires and the second with our outer public actions. And they're both important. In regards to your personal life, displaying Christianity will demand dealing, even conquering those sinful passions, those sinful desires. The right behavior begins with the right desire. Well, you know what fleshly lusts are. That's what Peter's dealing with here. Fleshly lusts, sinful desires. We know what that is. It's these passionate desires compelling you to do what you know is wrong. You have any of that? <laughs> Anybody feel a wrong tug within you pulling you to do the wrong thing? Look, it's not that the wrong actions suddenly just come out of us. Or, you know, suddenly betray themselves. 
It's that we don't want to do what's right, do we? We desire the wrong thing. And probably Peter is targeting first sinful desires because he knows this is where the problem begins. If you're going to display true Christianity, you've got to start where Jesus wants you to start, in the heart. That's where everything begins. The Bible teaches sin begins in your heart. James 1.15 says that a desire is first conceived and then it gives birth to sin. See, I don't know where that came from. I don't know how those words came out of me. I don't know how those actions came out of me. The Bible says you should know. It came right out of your desires, your sinful desires in your heart. Jesus taught this. Jesus taught any sin you commit comes forth from your own heart, which is to say any sin you commit begins in your inner personal desire for that sin. Remember that Peter has already charged us back in chapter 1, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Once again, he starts with identity. He says you are now obedient children. This is who you are. Therefore, Deal with those lusts. Deal with those desires. It's deeper than just what you say. It's deeper than just what people see. God wants your heart. He wants a reformation of your very inner passions. Now Peter says, abstain from. He said, don't be conformed to, don't let this culture shape your passions but now he's even stronger here he says we must abstain from sinful desires meaning do not even let them have a place at your table don't even let those desires have a foot in the door don't give them anything he's saying a pastor in haiti once illustrated this principle to his congregation he shared how a certain man wanted to sell his house for couple thousand dollars another man wanted very badly to buy it but because he was poor he couldn't afford to pay the full price so after much bargaining the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price with just one stipulation he would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the door well after several years the original owner returned he wanted the house back but the new owner was unwilling to sell so the first owner went out found the carcass of a dead dog and hung it from the single nail that he still owned. Well, soon the house became unlivable and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The point of the story was, if we leave the devil with even a small peg, those desires, you tolerate them in your life, guess what? He will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making our life unfit for the habitation of Jesus Christ. And he will prevent you from displaying Christ's excellencies. You see, Peter is calling us to abstain from sinful passions. God's saying you must have zero tolerance for sin, even its desires. You don't play around with it. He's saying kill it. Put it to death. Now someone might think, well, I'm not actually doing anything wrong, Pastor. Not by just imagining these things in my mind, but notice how Peter goes on to describe these sinful passions. Notice how he continues. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. How do fleshly lusts matter? Why do they matter? They wage war against your very soul. And how do they do that? Well, back in verse 9, Peter's just said, You've been called out of darkness into light so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Anything 
that dampens your desire to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That is waging war against your soul. It's killing your soul. That's the devil's work in you. That's your sin at work in you. Dampening your love and your heart and your display of Jesus Christ. John Wesley once wrote to his mother, Susanna, with this question. How would you judge the lawfulness or unlawfulness of any pleasure? And she replied, use this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sight of God, takes from you your thirst for spiritual things, or increases the authority of your body over your mind, then that is to you evil. By this test you may detect evil no matter how subtly or how plausibly temptation be presented to you. This woman knew what it meant, what it looked like to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. It's a war. It's a battle. There are things that you must stay away from, Christian, that aren't wrong for other people, but it's wrong for you. It's killing your love for Jesus. You want to display Christianity to the world? Deal with the heart. That's what Peter's saying. This is serious. We need the Spirit of God to resensitize our soul, to discern and abstain from anything that would hinder us from pursuing and displaying forth Christ. So God's telling you, however personal, however private, your sinful passions, they do matter to God. But the other measure here we must take in order to display true Christian behavior involves our public life. Peter's saying we must display that, or that displaying Christ to others will demand keeping our behavior excellent. He says, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And the word here translated keep is actually not a standalone verb, by the way, but it's a participle. And I only mention that to say that these verses are connected very strongly. What Peter's just said about your personal desires in verse 11 has everything to do. It's inseparable from his command about keeping your behavior excellent in verse 12. They go together. You can't have one without the other. Now, maybe someone's thinking, Pastor, you're saying this text is about displaying Christian behavior. But Peter says nothing about uniquely Christian behavior. He just says, keep your behavior excellent. So we can just live a a good moral life. Right? We don't necessarily have to be identified with Jesus in these actions. Uh, so is this really a call to display Christ-like behavior? Is it really a call to stand for Jesus in our public actions? Well, thanks for asking. Let me show you how we know that this is a call to publicly follow Jesus' example for Jesus' sake. First of all, to call anything excellent, we first must have an idea of what excellence is. We need a standard of excellence. And for Peter and his Christian audience, the quintessential standard of moral excellence was none other than Jesus Christ. In addition, or we, I should say this too, by the way, if you just continue to read the letter, you'll see it's very plain. Peter explicitly will appeal to Jesus' moral example. Jesus is the standard. But in addition to all that, we should remember that being identified as a Christian was already a foregone conclusion, at least for most of those Peter's writing to. They were already suffering on account of their faith. These people were already being slandered. Just read what Peter goes on to say. They were being slandered as evildoers. Why? Well, 1 Peter 4.16 makes it plain. They are being slandered as Christians for the name of Christ. 
Their families, their neighbors, the communities already knew they followed Jesus. So Peter doesn't need to clarify, oh yes, and make sure others know that when you're doing good works, you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it for Jesus' sake. You're identifying with Christ. He doesn't have to see that because everybody already knows that. Everybody already knows they're suffering for Jesus' sake. And finally, if you'll just look at Peter's next statement again, he, he explains the whole purpose for this excellent behavior is what? It's that others may observe our good works and glorify God. Glorify God. What God? The one true God. It's not just, I wonder what makes that person different. No, people know that as they see their good works, they are pointing others to Jesus Christ. Of course, I have to say that because if Peter was, was simply... Uh, advocating a strictly lifestyle evangelism where we can just simply do good deeds but we never talk about Jesus. We never connect what we're doing uh, following Jesus' example with Jesus himself. Hey, you know what? That would be convenient. I would like that because it would mean we could avoid somehow bearing reproach for the name of Christ. The world isn't going to have a problem with you helping them or doing good. But when you give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, they take issue with that. But Jesus said, that's exactly what I want. I want you to identify with me in your works. So I'm just saying, this, is, this excellent behavior Peter's calling to us to is not moralism. It's not simply doing good works, but it's doing good works for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name. All right. Now, by calling you to keep your behavior excellent, Peter's calling you then not to cease. Do not cease displaying Jesus' love, Jesus' humility, Jesus' service, Jesus' compassion, his forgiveness and mercy to others. You want to know what the excellent standard for behavior is? Look at Jesus Christ. That is the standard. Peter's saying we must keep our behavior in that way, following our Lord. And Peter's call to keep your behavior excellent could only be a call to demonstrate Christ-like behavior for Christ's sake. He's saying, hey, living as a Christian, it's not so simple as wearing a t-shirt, as sporting a bumper sticker, as simply gathering on Sundays with other people who are excited about Christ. No, living as a Christian is about living out your faith before others. What do you do at school? What do you do at work? (laughs) What do you do on the street? What do you do before your neighbors? We must identify with Christ. This is what living as a Christian is. And living as a Christian means... That your life is to be a walking, talking advertisement to Jesus Christ. That will either be your life, how you live before others, the greatest advertisement or greatest determinant to others for Christ Jesus. Francis of Assisi is famed to have said, preach Christ and if necessary, use words. I don't think he was saying words don't matter. We know that they do. We know the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing the words of God. And how will people hear without a preacher? You need to profess Christ. But the point is that our actions do speak louder than our words. People don't care what we say when we don't live what we say. When we don't live what we profess to believe, why should they take seriously our beliefs? Well, my pastor used to always say, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk always talks louder than your talk talks. Peter knew that. And it's true. And because of that, he says, deal with your sinful desires and keep your behavior excellent. Because otherwise, you can't display Christ to a watching world. It doesn't matter what you say. A young girl walking home from church on Sunday asked her mother, 
Mommy, why, um, you know, you told me that God was so big and that the world can't contain him and that the world is like his footstool so that you can't see the end of him. And her mother said, yes, that's true, honey. And she said, well, today we learn that God lives inside of me. The mother said, well, that's true too, honey. The little girl responded, but if God is so big that he can't fit in the world, and yet he also lives inside of me, shouldn't people see him coming out of me? Now, children have an interesting, very logical way of thinking about things. But that's very true. If your God is big, how big is your God? If your God is big, people will see him coming out of your life. I mean, out of your actions, out of the way you talk. Out of, yes, even what it is that you desire that is so manifest in how you live. That's a thought. Does the world see Jesus coming out of your words and actions? If not, how are they ever going to see Jesus in you? We must display Christianity given our Christian identity and by our Christian behavior. But thirdly, Peter wants us to know we must display Christianity so that others will glorify our God. Where does he say this? Peter urges, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The ultimate aim of our Christian behavior is to produce fruit that results in praise to our God. And this isn't easy. So Peter wants you to expect, if you'll... If you'll obviously and persistently display Jesus Christ to the world, Peter wants you to expect two things. First, some will slander you. Peter acknowledges to his Christian readers, they are being slandered. He says, they slander you as evildoers. Later on in chapter 4, he'll say, don't think that's strange. This is to be expected. And there's plenty of historical examples of this kind of slander. The Roman historians, uh, historian Tacitus reported that Christians were loathed because of their abominations. Oh, Christians were accused of cannibalism, incest, immorality because of the, the terminology they used in the Lord's table and they spoke of loving one another and they enjoyed these love feasts with one another. They were called atheists because they denied the gods of Rome and the Christian God was, after all, invisible. So they said they were atheists. Christians were also accused of treason because they would not serve in the army given a Roman soldier's religious duties. And also, they refused to burn incense to the emperor. Tacitus especially mentions that Christians were accused of hatred of the human race. Get this. Hatred of the human race, likely because of their belief in human depravity. Well, Christians are still slandered as haters to this day. For instance, some non-Christians claim what the Bible teaches about sin is hateful and harmful to others. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) The Bible is harmful. The Bible is full of hate, they'll say. They'll say the, the Bible's message about our sin problem and about God's salvation being exclusively in Jesus Christ, that is harmful. That is harmful to society. That threatens social peace and progress. You know, last week I spoke with a teacher from Schreiber High School who mentioned that some had complained that the Christian club is not inclusive enough. It's not inclusive enough. Now, how are we not inclusive enough? Well, anyone's welcome to attend. We're not checking Christian IDs at the door. Anyone's welcome to leave any time. There's no compulsion. 
just like any of the other clubs. But you see, some people feel that what it is Christians believe, our beliefs itself are not inclusive enough. They believe that what we believe and what we discuss as Christians is not inclusive enough. In other words, this is one way of saying the Christian club is not inclusive enough because it's Christian. But when you redefine Christianity by the standards of the world, you don't have Christianity anymore. You may be popular, you may fit in like a chameleon, but you don't have the undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're not being faithful to him. And you don't walk in the same legacy as Jesus and all of his apostles and all of his saints that ever suffered for his name. Guess what? The 21st century doesn't change any of that. The world's not going to like you any more than they like Jesus and any one of his apostles. Well, this is just one way they slander us as evildoers. And we need to expect this so we're not unprepared and disillusioned when it happens. There are plenty of Christians who suffer for doing wrong. I know that. I think we we hear stories on the news of people doing things that are wrong. And Peter's going to address that in chapter 4 or in chapter 3. But right here, we're simply talking about Christians who are being slandered simply for being Christian. They believe the gospel. And guess what? They're not ashamed to talk about it. And because of that, because of their public stand for Christ... They are slandered. Peter's solution to this isn't, hey, become a chameleon. Blend in your surroundings. Just cool off a bit. Don't tell people about Jesus. That's a cop-out. Honestly, now the world slandered Jesus. Do we really think they're not going to slander us? No, the solution that Peter offers is keep your behavior. Continue to keep your behavior excellent. You keep doing the right thing. You keep doing the right thing. You be steadfast, as Paul said, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He doesn't say people aren't going to oppose you. He says what you're doing is worth it. There's a fight because it's worth it. The enemy doesn't like what we're doing. If you'll display Jesus Christ obviously and persistently to this rebel world, you can expect some will oppose you. Some will slander you. But also, you can expect... Your labor is not in vain. Some will eventually glorify your God. Peter's saying that these observing your good works, your good deeds, may glorify God in the day of visitation. He's not saying everyone in every case, but here's a general rule. That as you live for God faithfully, God is working. He's at work. Your labor is not in vain. Now this day of visitation he mentions here could either mean... Jesus' visitation at his second coming or Jesus' visitation on the day when he visits a sinner with salvation. And Peter does talk much about Jesus' second coming in this letter, but I believe he's here specifically speaking about the day when Christ visits a soul with salvation. And just one reason for that is found in Acts 15, 14, where many Christians are gathered together in Jerusalem. They're discussing what God is doing in the world, specifically how God is now saving Gentiles. And James stands up and mentions that how Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has related how God first visited. God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. James was recalling Peter's experience with Cornelius, this Roman centurion in his household. And how God visited those dear people with salvation. His point is, God is now visiting not just the Jews, he's visiting people from all the nations of the world with salvation. I believe that's what Peter has in mind here. 
He's talking about the day when God visits a sinner, just like if you're in Jesus Christ, he visited you one day, and by his grace, he made you alive. Are there people in your life that need a visit from Jesus Christ? They need that day of salvation? Well, God wants you to know, you have a part to play in this. No, I didn't say, Peter didn't say, that we are the ones who bring that about. God gives the increase, but you have a part to play in God bringing others to himself. A young salesman came to his boss with his head hanging down, and he said, you know, I just couldn't close the deal. You know how it is. You can bring a horse to water, but you just can't actually make the horse drink. Of course, his boss replied. You can't make the horse drink. You're not supposed to make the horse drink. You're supposed to make the horse thirsty. You're supposed to make them thirsty, Christian. Peter understood the same. He's not expecting us to make people trust Jesus. We can't visit them with salvation. But you can actually make them thirsty. If you'll faithfully live out your life for Jesus, others will be drawn to Jesus. It's true. There's a real sense in which your Christian life lived out before the eyes of others is the fifth gospel. Now, don't mishear me here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels are very important in them. Of course, we find the revelation of Jesus Christ's salvation offered to all the world. That's important. But you know what? Then there's your Christian life. In a very real sense, your Christian life is at least supposed to be, in like manner, a demonstration of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And this is biblical. 2 Corinthians 4 explains the life of Jesus is made manifest through our lives, through our living. So if Jesus has made a difference in your life, others will see that and they'll become thirsty for that difference in their own life. But the sad truth is this. Many non-believers will never read, never seriously investigate the first four Gospels because they've already read the fifth. They've already looked at a Christian life, which wasn't very Christian, was it? And why should they take seriously the Gospel of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when they look at a living advertisement? Those who claim to be a Christian and they don't see anything there. They don't see anything worth exploring. All the world's a stage. The eyes of the world are upon us. The whole world is watching. We must display Christ to this watching world. When a terrible plague broke out in Alexandria during the 4th century AD, it's reported that many panicked and left behind their friends and next of kin. Dionysius writing then tells us how people thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends and cast the sufferers out upon the public roads half dead and left them unburied and treated them with utter contempt when they died. But he says of the Christians, very many, while in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness, did not spare themselves, but kept by each other and visited the sick without thought of their own peril and ministered to them assiduously and treated them for their healing in Christ dying from time to time most joyfully, drawing upon themselves their neighbor's diseases and willingly taking over to their own persons the burden of the sufferings of those around them. This is ancient history of the living Jesus at work in his people. With Christianity like that on display, it's no wonder the Christian faith spread so rapidly across the Roman Empire. 
These Christians were making people thirsty. They were displaying Christ to the world. And now it's our turn. Now we are the city set on a hill. We were seeing the light. We saw the light. We are now the light. We need to shine the light. We need to make the world thirsty for a relationship with Jesus. All the world is a stage. There's no lack of opportunity, but there's surely a lack of power. And this morning, I believe the Spirit of God is calling us as His people to get real with God, to repent of sin, to say, my life is not my own. My life is for Jesus. May the Lord Jesus live out His life, His will, His purpose, His power in our lives. Let's pray.